Hello and welcome to Alone Upfront. This is the podcast for teachers doing it by themselves. And that's right, we're on to episode six now, episode six of Alone Upfront. And in just a second, I'm going to be asking Steve what we're talking about today. But I just want to say thank you for tuning in. Have you listened to our previous podcasts? And if you're getting some value out of this, we are absolutely loving that. Leave us a comment uh, on the Podbean page. We would love to have some interaction. What do you want to see us cover on the Alone Upfront podcast. Let's hand it over to Steve in Berlin. How are you, Steve? Hi, Chris. Yeah, very happy to be here once again. It's a summer's day in Berlin and really happy to be on episode six. As ever, the podcast is for those teachers that have fallen into teaching. People who find themselves suddenly alone up front uh, in front of a bunch of people and apparently facilitating their education. And it can happen by plan or it just can happen by circumstance. And if you find yourself doing it like, wow, okay, here I am. Everyone expects me to teach. Well, this is the podcast for you because we're going to give you the benefits of our, well, what benefits we've been able to glean from our experience. Me and Chris have both been teaching up front for a few years now. So like Chris said, if you haven't listened to the previous podcast, we got um, five other ones up there. Check them out. And today we're looking at questioning strategies. Mm. One of those topics that I think when I started thinking about it, it sounded a little bit slight, like, well, okay, asking questions, how hard can it be? <laughs> but the more I thought about it, the the deeper it went. And I'm going to start with a question mm. for you, Chris, um, which okay. is, imagine um, somebody is, is heading into a teaching or training scenario. They've never really done anything like that before. They've been given a bit of time. Um, what do you think most people would do? in the first sort of five, 10, 15 mm. minutes? How, how do you, I mean, somebody that's never taught before, so is only going on a kind of pre, what they presuppose teaching is supposed to be mm. like. What what kind of things do you imagine? Take from your own experience or uh, other people well, that you've seen. It's a good question. I mean, that, I think, well, there's what I did, but I don't think what I did is going to be representative necessarily of what, you know, the normal person would do. Well, what did you do? What did you but, do? I went in, and I'm not just saying this because we're talking about questioning. Mm. I went in with some very open questions and had the expectation that students would be able to kind of structure a discussion about a topic. And this was when I was doing my year abroad, uh, teaching in a school in France, in suburban Paris, and didn't go too well. I did exactly the same. I went in there and thought, right, I'm not going to be like a boring teacher. I'm not just going to stand there talking at, at my learners. I'm going to be totally cool and approachable. And we're going to have like a, a dialogue. And the learning's just mm-hmm. going to kind of, sort of happen in the background because we're just going to chat back and forth. It's going to be amazing. Um, exactly. So <laughs> we, we both had this idea that you go in there and through dialogue, through asking questions and students throwing back answers and you kind of, you know, back and forth, amazing interaction, that learning just happens. And I promised to listeners that I didn't... T- prime Chris I didn't tell him to say that but I think that this is the approach that lots of people adopt there's a Mm. thing that there's a sort of a a conception that um a poor quality teaching is a one-way street where the teacher just sort of Mm. drones on and and the the students listen and write stuff down but chalk and talk yeah exactly but good teaching the teaching that we all imagine we want to do involves dialogue and involve involves questioning and um Mm. and I think that it's and I don't want for one minute want to say that people shouldn't be doing that. I think that that's absolutely the right approach. But I think the problem is 
that this concept of instruction via dialogue, it's so mm. embedded in our consciousness as just the automatic way to do things that we don't actually question it much. It's just mm. seen as what you do. And in order to do it effectively, you really do need to dig in and try and figure out what makes it work, what's happening during this question and answer process, and what we're trying to ultimately achieve with it. And the first thing we can do, and this can be quite satisfying, is know that what you're doing when you go in there and start asking questions is you're using a dialectic method of instruction. Mm. Um, dia reminds of dialogue. And so a dialectic is something that goes uh, both ways. It involves some kind of back and forth. Now, the opposite, mm. the approach that people feel they don't want to use would be a didactic approach. Uh, so I see, yeah. Straight away, we're getting lost in the um, morass of educational jargon. But let's not worry too much about the semantics. So so that's the chalk and talk stuff, yeah, didactic. Yeah, didactic is the one one way. I mean, I mean, there's broader meanings for the word didactic and subject. Didactics can mean generally how you approach teaching a subject and that kind of thing. But for the purposes of this discussion, we're talking about didactic, meaning you be quiet, I listen. Sorry, that's wrong. You you listen, I talk. <laughs> um, you be quiet, I talk. Yep. And that's the way the, the knowledge enters your brain, and that's how we do it. Mm, Dial okay. The dialectic approach is um, something where we have a, a back and forth. Um, mm, and okay. it's very well established, certainly in the West, as the dominant form of, of instruction. But mm. I think, well, in my experience, too rarely do people actually reflect on it and think about how they're supposed to be doing it. And I think mm. that um, it's for, for teachers working in alone upfront contexts, it's doubly important. You may have a slightly smaller group size if you're working alone up front. So in a typical classroom, mm. when I was teaching in London, I had a 24, might go up to 30, even higher. With those large group sizes, there are limits to this um, questioning approach because you're always talking to one learner. We talked to, um, a couple of podcasts ago about uh, broadening the interaction. But if you're in a an unconventional teaching, so, so you're doing a, a training day or you're doing maybe a small company language course or something because you've gone abroad, then you might have a smaller group. So that will definitely lean towards this idea of, of discussion. People won't expect mm. you to stand there and just talk at a small group of people. Absolutely. And I, I think it can work our kind of slightly naive approach, uh, you know, could work if you had extremely capable learners as well. Yes. So, you know, it's... We've got the size of the group to bear in mind and also uh, the level of the learners yeah. uh, too. Yeah. And the and the age of the of the learners. Um we, we may if again if you're working with adults, you're more likely to ha not have support structures for various reasons. If you're working with children, then you're probably in a school, which means you're probably embedded in authority. So um our listeners, teachers working alone up front, are likely to to need this even more so than than more sort of regular uh, teachers in conventional contexts. So that's mm -hmm. why it's really important. So the first question is, um, this dialectic approach, why mm. doesn't it work? Or when it when it doesn't work, <laughs> what happens? Um, I mean, we can start with some scenario, scenarios. The, the obvious one is you ask a question and nobody answers. Yeah. You know, just uh, stony we've silence. We've been there so many times. Yeah. I've, you know, I've been there, the amount of times I've been there has meant that I'm very judicious, careful about how I ask any question. Uh, it's, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm very cautious about, you know, that kind of classic, okay, guys, what do we think about this topic? Oh, yeah. 
oh, and yeah. oh, and and all of that enthusiasm just just drains away. The, and you're, you know, you're fighting an uphill battle for the rest of the session. The excruciating silence and you're looking hopefully around the room and they're sort of looking back at you or <laughs> maybe avoiding <laughs> eye contact and you're sort of... And what happens is you end up choosing somebody that you know is a capable student and sort of mm. putting it on them. And and, and sometimes, it, I mean, it, it can really backfire in, instantly. I had a, a colleague who said... Um, this colleague was so frustrated because the students just wouldn't talk. And he actually said, I, you know, it's ridiculous. I provoke them and I provoke them and they just won't speak. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> so, <laughs> I thought so it's like he's, pro he's prodding them with a stick or well, something. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I mean, uh, this mm. is what can happen. You get yourself in this negative cycle where you're asking questions, they're not answering. Totally. And you end up becoming so frustrated that you actually try to provoke your learners into saying something. Mm. And this is, I mean, mm. this is really not the path we want to go down. Um, exactly. The fact is that getting this dialectical approach right is very, very difficult. Uh, mm -hmm. But because it's sort of seen as the go-to method everyone uses, everyone underestimates exactly how difficult it is. It's like when you're learning to drive. If you've been driving for a few years, you think, well, how could anybody not do this? You just, you just drive. But when you're learning to drive, you think, this is incredibly hard. But we forget mm. how difficult it is. We can actually put, sure. put, a, na we can put a name to this um, method, uh, this dialectical method. Um, we can call it Socratic questioning or the Socratic method or Socratic mm. dialogue from Socrates, father of teaching. Um, and Well, I imagine, I imagine in that that kind of teaching setting it will probably work quite well where you've got um you know a, a philosopher although i think when socrates was around he wasn't regarded as a mm, philosopher mm. but you've got one intellectual speaking to another intellectual and 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 who was socrates kind of student was it plato yes. or was it the other way around it was plato yeah, wasn't it yeah yeah so 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 that's where it works where you've got two very intellectually minded people who want to go kind of deep into the theory, you know, yeah. and, that's, and that's not when we're alone up front these days, that's not the situation we're in. Well, that's, that's right. Um, if, yeah, if, you're, if you have a, a class of Plato's in front of you, then, then probably, yeah. probably your Socratic dialogue is <laughs> going to go quite well. But we don't, yeah. we don't have that. And I mean, Socrates actually believed that any form of teaching, that he believed that questioning was the only legitimate form of teaching. Um, mm. But then, you know, he was teaching ideas and philosophy in, in ancient Greece. And, and mm. you might say, well, you know, he wasn't teaching how to set up your internet connection or something, but who knows? <laughs> I mean, he set it up and the Socratic, I mean, anybody that goes into a learning space and asks the learners a question and gets the discussion going is using um, Socratic questioning, the Socratic method. So, mm. that you, so without maybe even never having heard of that, you are using something that's been, that was developed or thousands of years ago. So this is like an ancient and pretty well-proven technique if you do it Absolutely. right. Absolutely. Now, the thing is, understanding what makes Socratic dialogue work and what makes it not work involves so many different factors. I don't want to just, um, I don't want to be didactic about it and just talk about it. I want to ask <laughs> you some questions um, mm. and try and bring out some of the key ideas that way. Um, but we're not going to do it in classic Socratic dialogue. That would be too transparent. The listeners would be rolling their eyes thinking, oh, God, now they're going to demonstrate some Socratic dialogue. <laughs> I'm just going to ask you some questions, which I'm pretty sure you don't know the answer to. Um, okay. But we'll see. So a three-question pop quiz for Chris. Let's see how he does. It's uh, a definitions <laughs> quiz, Chris. Cool. I think we need a jingle going in We here. should. Oh, maybe I'll make one. Yeah. Um, I'll say the um, the term, and you've got to try and define it. And if you need, okay. if you need one, I've got a clue for each um, 
for each question, so we're differentiating this a little bit as well. So, first up, what is, in your view, the adversarial or adversarial mm. system? Adversarial, advers well, an adversary is an enemy. Right. So it sounds like you're pitting two people or maybe two points of view in opposition and yep. possibly trying to work through uh, a difficult issue in that way, a bit like we do in Is It Worth It? <laughs> That's right, Is It Worth It?, which is coming up yep. later, by the way, folks. Our feature when me and Chris uh, furiously debate a controversial aspect of education. Yeah, so the adversarial system, it's, um, it's the basis of our legal system as well in the West. Mm. When you try to determine somebody's guilt... We don't simply investigate it and make a decision. We say, right, mm. one person should argue for the guy not being guilty. One person should argue for the guy being guilty. They should argue as well as they possibly can. You should get the best people. Mm. They should contest it back and forth. And then that is the fairest way of doing it. So we sure. have an adversarial legal system. And the basis of um, Socratic questioning is that that same principle of the adversarial approach is the best way to get to the truth. So you actually have um, a system where two people take differing positions, not necessarily the positions they actually um, hold. So in the same way, me and you don't necessarily argue our genuine positions in Is It Worth It? And that's the best way to get to the, the truth. Now, of course, instantly you have we have issues here because if we're arguing something that we don't necessarily believe, but we're mm. doing it for the sake of trying to develop our knowledge, then there's levels of truth and power and reality and deception that are coming straight in um that, that are starting to bubble under the socratic questioning process so let's let's bear that in mind it is fundamentally an adversarial approach you are okay. you, you are positioning yourself as a teacher as an as the adversary of your learners so this is already going to bring with it i mean it, it's you should still be doing it but let's be aware that's going to be an issue question number two of the three question mm. pub quiz okay do you know what the dunning kruger effect is Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you a clue. It's, yeah. it's, it's contested, um, but it's generally agreed uh, it's a, to be a psychological phenomenon which occurs mm. when people are assessing their own ability or their own knowledge over a period of time. Mm, okay. So this is tense. If, if you know what it is, you know what it is. If you don't know what it is, it's kind of tricky. And no Socratic questioning will, for me, will, will get you there. I don't know. Do, do you have any thoughts on it? Or shall I reveal what it is? Oh, it's, um, I, I have heard of it. I'm trying to, I'm trying to kind of piece it together. Yeah. And um, so it's to do with somebody's perception of their own learning. Yes. You're saying. Yes. Okay. Is it to do with their perception of how they're doing in relation to others? Um, yeah, no. You not, can say no. Not really. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, in Socratic, Socratic question, you never say no. You always find something you can yeah. do. <laughs> well, it's to do with their perception yeah. of their ability over time, crucially. Okay. Crucially. Okay. Um, and the Dunning-Kruger effect is something which is, it's, it's not, it's contested, but generally it's the idea that the, when you initially embark on some new skill or some area of knowledge, initially you overestimate your ability. Then you... Oh, is this the, the four... Is, is this to do with competence and... Um, yes, yes. Conscious, blow up. Exactly. You, be okay. you, become, yep. you become aware of how difficult it actually is 
and then your, yes. your 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 estimation of your abilities sinks drastically, and then it yep. gradually rises, and you then have an actual mastery of whatever it is, and you believe. So your perceived ability mm. matches your actual ability, but that takes time. So that curve of thinking, well, this is pretty straightforward. Oh my word, no, it's not at all. Now then, after a long time, oh now I can do it. That's called the Dunning Kruger effect. Now, this is incredibly important because it also lies at the heart of Socratic um, questioning. What you're trying to do is not simply get the knowledge or the skill into the learner's head, but you need to activate their awareness of their own lack of knowledge. Mm, you need you, you're, you're, the purpose of it is is using questioning adversarial questioning methods to draw learners' attention to the fact that where they might be wrong or where they may have mm. underestimated the complexity of the topic. So this is conscious incompetence. Yes, exactly. Yes. Right. Becoming yeah. going from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence and yeah. then ultimately getting to conscious competence. Yes. Um that's yeah. the Dunning-Kruger effect curve. Um so we have adversarial um system brings problems. We have you're mm. you're actually you're 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 putting your finger into the wound of the student's ignorance. This is also problematic, um, or, or rather, it is a necessary part of Socratic questioning, but my word can lead to problems. The final question in the pop quiz, this is, can you define to me Socratic irony? Oh, Socratic irony. I've definitely not heard of that one. Okay, I can give you a clue. And that is that um, on your YouTube channel, uh, Tiger Spreadsheet mm. Solutions, for anybody that uses Excel out there, Chris runs a great YouTube channel. I've watched most of your YouTube videos, and you use mm. Socratic irony in every single video uh, that I've seen of oh. yours. So you may not know what it is, but you certainly use it on a regular basis. So is this um, um, kind of shining a light on what you might not know and... Um, kind of asking meta level on the metacognitive level you know asking questions to get people thinking in the right way to um to kind of move towards learning about it i don't know that that is that is the intention of what you're doing but the way you mm. do that is that you pretend to be mm. less capable than you actually are you literally okay. pretend not to understand something or you pretend that you misunderstand something or that you mm. pretend that your understanding is a little bit limited deliberately in order to encourage people interacting with you to get to, to want to kind of to help you out and in that process have to explicate their own understanding of the subject. So you pretend Got to you. be dumb. You play dumb in <laughs> order to facilitate this dialogue. And I've seen okay. you in, in your YouTube channels. Uh, I've seen you asking rhetorical questions, saying, "Well, I mean, why isn't this working? Surely, if we do that, then that should happen." I don't get it. And you know, we do it yeah. in a slightly theatrical <laughs> way to kind of um, signpost the fact that we're doing this, but it is deliberately underplaying your own awareness. Okay, that's Socratic irony. Mm, and anybody okay. listening Good. to this that's done much teaching has probably thinks, "Oh, damn, I, I, I do that thing." And then, now you have a word for it. But 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 let's consider the implications of this. Adversarial, Dunning-Kruger effect, drawing attention to incompetence, and then pretending, be, being in a way fake as a teacher. These are all essential elements of successful Socratic questioning, and yet every single one of them 
brings up many conflicts with your learners. Mm. Um, it, and this is what makes it so difficult. And of course, the big thing hanging over this is that we think we're supposed to be able to do it. We think that's just how mm. you do it. And everyone does this. But actually, we're kind of throwing ourselves into the lion's den here because every element of this is um, is very difficult and very challenging. Sure. So, yeah. so, so, so it's hardly surprising that, that people struggle with it. In the second half of the podcast, what we're going to look at is um, how we, with this awareness, how we can then make it a bit more concrete and, and use specific questioning techniques to, to get the benefit out of this um, out of this strategy without falling into the pitfalls. But now it's time for our next section. Is it worth mm. it? This is where me and Chris <laughs> debate a hotly contested element of classroom practice and decide whether it's really worth it. Check it out. I have the coin. It's a two euro, two euro coin this time. Your right side up, you're arguing four. Um, eagle side up, I'm arguing four. The topic okay. is... Should you praise your students mm, okay. uh, or, or, or learners? Okay. Should you or should you praise your learners? And kind of how much should you praise your learners? I'm tossing the coin right now. Mm. Okay. The euro sides up, which means I'm arguing four. four. I think. Okay. So I'm arguing that for your arguments, I'm going to start by saying, the question is, should you praise your students? Is it worth it? You might say, Chris, that it's a waste of time, that uh, your mm. learners should just be there for the sake of learning, that it can be uh, demotivational if the teacher is constantly telling them how amazing they are. It's not really. But I say no. You have to praise your learners because the simple accrual of knowledge in the learning process is not something that happens. It's not, you're, as a teacher, you're not doing it. Your learners are doing the work. It's far too easy as a teacher for a great piece of learning for the teacher to take the credit for that and not praise the fact that the students actually did all the work and mm. not take the opportunity to say, to say, guys, you have done some excellent learning there. That was not easy and you struggled through it and I'm really amazed at the progress you've made. But Steve, we've, we've, we've seen, this, seen this so many times. You're working with students over you know, a period of, of days and weeks and if you're constantly complimenting them, then, you know... These students are not stupid, you know. They're not, they're not young children, and they they, they know that uh, they can feel over the over time that those kind of encouraging comments are they just devalue. It's like it's it's like inflation. The more <laughs> you say it, the more you're the more you're giving your you know gently cajoling them, the less impact the words have. Let me tell you, Steve, about my university basketball coach. Now, this guy, professional uh, basketball coach, and I can say, I think in four years of training, you know, twice a week, three times a week basketball, I think he said he said one he said one good thing about me, and um, at the end of the um, of the season. So, so so when he's coaching, you know, he's always telling you you're rubbish, telling you you've got to work harder, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then at the end of the season, he wrote everybody, all the players, a letter. And he said in the letter is just like one good thing. And, and, and he said about me, <laughs> uh, you're, I, th I think it was something like, you're the hardest working player I've ever trained with. 
you know, I've ever trained. Yeah. So that one thing you can tell has stayed with me. You know, that was what, <laughs> okay. that was yeah. what, 15 years ago. And, it, and if I've been getting, you know, all this encouragement all the time, you know, I just, I just would never have, have had this profound experience of feeling incredibly motivated by one <laughs> very focused and deliberate and deliberate comment. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, that's an interesting example. And I wonder, I wonder how much, how, how far the parallels go between uh, sports endeavors and mm. learning. Um, mm. Let's see, because there's, there's, there's a few key differences here. Our learners are not necessarily necessarily intrinsically aware of the importance of the learning that they're doing if you go and play on a basketball team you want to yeah. get better because you want to win although if you didn't want to win and beat the other team and and, and score baskets and, and, and convert and all those things why would you be playing now you could argue well but learners should be motivated too they should also have that same drive to learn and get better mm. but let's get real here um Understanding how to master a certain element of communication skill or understand a piece of history or know a certain chemical equation, you cannot expect the learner to fully motivate him or herself at every moment of that in the same way that a basketball player would. And if you cannot draw their attention to what amazing progress they've made, um, and let's say, we're not praising so much the, the learner here, we're praising the learning that they have done. So I think it's slightly externalized. Mm. I think you yeah. have to do it because otherwise um, they, they won't perceive. I mean, the progress has happened, but they're not aware of it. So this praising that I'm advocating mm. is not so much just um, bigging them up and, and sort of endlessly um, rather giving them superficial compliments. It's actually teaching them to feel and to feel good about the progress they've made. Because otherwise they would know the stuff. They would have done the learning, but they wouldn't be aware of, of how hard that probably was for them. Mm. So Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. I think I think there's actually two two ideas here. You know, there's praise, but then there's motivation. Mm. And I think I think the more important idea is creating motivation. Because as you said, you know, it's not a sports team, you know, it's not a business. You know, where is that intrinsic motivation and i don't know you could you can create motivation in lots of different ways mm. through challenge through doing things creatively through group work i'm not convinced you know this th th this is me speaking genuinely mm. actually steve mm. i'm not i'm not convinced mm. that um that um i think a student could find it um patronizing mm. if if we're there saying mm. oh this 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 is really really this this is really good work, but we can we can motivate in other ways mm. to get to get the best out of them, mm. you know, not not just by giving praise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, stepping also now back into my genuine position, we would engage in the adversarial uh, debate there. I, yeah. I broadly agree with my <laughs> I broadly agree with my position that that you should be praising. We should all be praising learners probably mm. more than we do. The ratio yep. that was thrown around when I was a teacher in, in the UK, having done teacher training, was that we should look to to praise nine times for every sanction that you had to give. Of course, I was mm. talking in a comprehensive school context of learners aged 11 to 18, so there was quite a lot of sanctioning going on in, in a city school in London. And teachers alone up front hopefully don't have that level of behaviour management to deal with. And the challenge was always um, the, the classic phrase that people, older colleagues said to me was, catch them being good. 
you know, take it, take every moment Mm -hmm. you can to Mm -hmm. find something positive to say about their behavior and their learning so that when the inevitable sanctions came, um, they had, there was Mm. a a font of goodwill built up. So, but this was, but how, but how, how would you actually deliver that in, how would you actually say that in um, a university or an adult education or a TEFL context where, where you're working with adults, would you say, I mean, I like saying good job. Yeah. Um, because it's, uh, you know, well, you're talking about a job, you're not saying, you know, you're not saying you're very good, you're saying the work you've done is good, so you can kind of depersonalise it in that way. But I think just finding the language that doesn't feel patronising, doesn't feel awkward to the student, particularly if you're working with Asian students who who are probably not used to getting this kind of... um, It's praise. Mm. I think find, finding the right language to do it um, is can, can be a challenge. I, I completely agree with you, and I think um, it's really about separating the, the the learning from the from the learner. Um, mm. It's also connected with objectives and outcomes a little bit. Uh, we talked about that a few podcasts ago. Um, that uh, outcomes are the the physical manifestation of a learning, so a, a well written text or a well um, executed presentation. But the objective is what happens inside the learner's head, the actual learning in in their brain, as it were. And I think that if you focus your praise on outcomes. Um, then you are externalizing it from the learner and you're not implying that there's something intrinsic in their personality or their character which you're praising, mm. which I agree, could be a bit uncomfortable and also could lead to a... That's not really the point. I mean, our, our job as a teacher, we're not... We're not we, we should not, not never be passing judgment on them as, as people, per se. Sure. That's not, that's not the idea. We are responsible for their learning. So I think you can externalize it that way. And, I mean, it's true that one thing we noticed at the school I worked at was that some students who were quite capable but behaviorally a little problematic, there was this real entitlement thing um, where they were saying, look, I'm a level five learner. I do this, this, and I shouldn't have to do this group work with these these kids. They're not as clever as me, which was difficult because, again, they'd heard so often that they were good at something, and they were, that it was affecting them in, in a negative way. So it really is kind of a, a back and forth. It's it's hard to get right. And I think mm. that, as always, ultimately plugging it into the metacognitive level is often the way forward. If you have presented a task and you've drawn attention in the intro to the task, the processes that will be happening in the learner's minds um, and the, the processes that will lead ultimately to success and the processes that might lead to less success, um, then you can afterwards, if a learner has implemented that in, in, a, in an effective way, you can draw attention to the way they have followed that path and the results the result it's brought them, rather than just mm. um, out of nowhere at the end of the task, kind of picking your favorite students as might be the perception and just saying how good they are. I complete I completely agree. It's I think you should we probably thinking about that 9 to 1 ratio, we could all benefit from praising our learners a little bit more teachers in a, AUF circumstances, but I don't up front, but we have but I agree we have to be careful and you don't want to patronize them. You don't want it to become too personal. You're not praising them as people so much, you're praising their learning and you don't want mm. a sense of entitlement setting in where they kind of use that praise and start using it for negative negative purposes. Okay, so Socratic questioning, Socratic method, Socratic dialogue. As we've seen, it is um, a widespread perception that this is the way we should be doing teaching. 
But that widespread perception is not matched by a deeper understanding of the process mm. and purpose. And I think that Socratic questioning often gets bolted on as a bit of an afterthought. And sometimes you have essentially didactic teaching, so one way, teacher to learner, being implemented with a superficial gloss of Socratic questioning happening. Mm. So, I mean, you, you, can, mm -hmm. you can probably imagine the scene. Teacher asks a question, a few brave learners attempt, but they get the answer wrong. The teacher then gives the right answer and then gives a didactic explanation of why his or her answer was right. And that questioning at the start mm -hmm. is a kind of point, point well, it's not it's worse than pointless, it's damaging to learner confidence. And it doesn't flow in to the actual teaching which is performed didactically. Other end of the scale, teacher asks, asks a question, brave learners attempt to answer the question that they get it wrong. Um, but then the teacher sort of offers a non-committal reply to the initial answer and somebody else has a go. Mm. And then he sort of says, yeah, well, kind of. And then the next person mm. has a go. And you sort of get into this circle of of unstructured mm. uh, comments where the learners just think, well, what, what, what? just tell... You know what? That's 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 where I'd be going hard on the praise. Yes, there. absolutely. I'll be saying really good job for trying. I really appreciate you trying before I said anything else. You know, that's a good example of where you've got to be big on the praise. Definitely. I mean, in both of these cases, if you have like just the the Socratic dialogue and then actually it's just didactic, or the Socratic dialogue when actually there's not really a point to it. There's just sort of going around in circles. Um, th this kind of thing can be managed with praise, but only if you are sort of close to to getting it right as it were if you're sort of way off the mm. reservation and, and you don't really understand what the purpose of this is then no amount of praise is going to is going to fix it another thing that, another thing that sure. can happen is uh, attempting you know socratic irony a teacher completely confuses the learner by by disagreeing with the learner's perfectly reasonable assertion. So the learner says something which mm -hmm. everyone agrees is generally right. And the teacher's like, well, no, but that's not how I see it. What about blah, 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 blah. And of course, what the teacher's doing is there is playing ignorance in order to... But if the learner doesn't understand that, um, then they get mm -hmm. confused. The teacher then might, in a slight panic, sort of revert to the normal discourse, saying, no, no, no. And then everyone's you know, chaos reigns. Nothing, mm -hmm. nothing is clear. And of course, all of those scenarios, imagine that with learners from non-Western backgrounds and everything is exponentially mm. worse because Socratic dialogue is basically a, the Western tradition. You have experience of teaching yeah. in Asia um, mm. and, and teaching in Europe. I, I've never taught outside Europe. Um, did, did you perceive a difference in the way uh, this kind of questioning was received by learners in, in France and in Japan? Uh, without a doubt, certainly in Japan, uh, well, the, the physical setup of the classroom is for didactic, not dialectic exchanges because mm. you've got single, mm. uh, you've got single desks all yeah. facing the front. There's a kind of raised platform at the front for the teacher to stand on. So you're, you, you, you're a foot above normal floor level. So being right. six foot five anyway, it was just, it was just <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> how like how high I was. Um I almost had a bird's eye view. And then the third thing is the the, the blackboard or the whiteboard, whatever board you're using, mm, is mm, um mm. huge. It's mm. um it, it spans the whole width of the classroom. Right. So so those three things, you know, the physical setup is geared towards um yeah, the didactic approach, the chalk and talk approach. Yeah, I see. So there are many, many, many pitfalls here. Mm. And obviously, um, as a result of this, 
any learner you come across will have been burned before during sure. some point in their life. I'm sure we everybody. have. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, many times. And so everybody, the teacher's standing there saying, okay, guys, so uh, oh. who, blah, blah, blah. And you instantly... <laughs> The guard goes up, mm. like, because like, oh no, this happened one time. And I, I tried to answer it, and then I got really embarrassed because actually I wanted this, you mm. know. So uh, you cannot blame your learners for being cautious about this. Mm. Like my colleague that said he tried to provoke them. Mm. I mean, th- no, 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 no. Don't blame the learner. Absolutely. Um, blame blame the lack of understanding of Socratic dialogue, which leads sure. them to to be so cautious. Now, there's. Also, the problem as relates to differentiation, which we talked about uh, last week, um, some learners are more able or more willing to take on risk. So Socratic questioning can facilitate effective differentiation because you're kind of giving an opportunity for stronger learners to um, propose answers. But on the other side, it freezes out Mm. less confident learners. And imagine, I've had this, and I'm sure... you're, you don't, you're not quite sure of the answer, and then somebody else answers anyway, and then you're just sat there watching one of the smart people indulge in some, like, oh, clever, clever, pretend argument with the teacher, mm. and they're all having a great time, and it's all very funny, And but you're not part of this dialogue. I sure. mean, the, the Socratic question needs to extend to all the people um, involved and not just favour the more able learners, but it but it does favour the more able learners because of the sophistication of the um, the adversarial system, this idea of drawing attention to um, lack of awareness, and all of those things that make it make it tricky. Mm. So, really, what we're talking about here, I think, is is trust, um, a relationship of trust between the teacher and the learner. Uh, a foundation of trust is what you need for for effective Socratic questioning. It's inherently adversarial. It intentionally plays with the power relationship between the teacher and the learner Mm. through Socratic irony. Mm. So by its very nature, it requires that learners trust their teacher not to exploit their willingness to venture less than fully formed ideas. Your learners have to trust you that you will protect them Mm. from the potential funny comments or, or, or embarrassing sure. moments they might experience when they haven't quite got the answer right. They need to trust that this is going to be a, a bumpy ride, mm. this kind of journey they're going on in their minds, but that their teacher will maybe at a certain point seem to be arguing them, seem to be questioning them, seem to be unfairly representing their views, but the learners know, maybe not at a conscious, but certainly at an implicit unconscious level, they know that as a teacher you're putting their learning first and they mm. feel safe sure. um, in, in this process and they trust that this, okay, and but establishing that foundation of trust, that is not something that is um, a question of done in a lesson or done in a, a couple of minutes chat at the start. Mm. You can start late. You can start laying the groundwork for that, but it, it, is, it is something that is built up over over years I mean, of experience. And I should say, all of the problems I talked about earlier, I've experienced them all myself. I've done all of that, made all those I, I, mistakes. Me too, Steve. Many, me too, Steve. And just many times. Sure, sure. And just listening to what you say, I'm I'm trying to racking my brains here and trying to think the last time I helped a student to to um you know verbalize a less than fully formed idea mm. and that in itself oh I, I i don't think i've really managed it i mean i mean we're talking about about getting a student to say yeah i, I think it might it might be because of this um or it might be because of that you know i'm not sure mm. and i 
I think that's 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 really quite rare in the yeah. uh, the teaching. Obviously, we all have different teaching settings, but I'm teach I'm talking about a tutorial setting with about twenty students, mm. and it's really quite difficult to get students to to um, you know take take that leap of faith that they're, they're yes. going to put something out there and not be humiliated. Yeah, yeah, and well. Mm. It, 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 it is very difficult. And I mean, it's all well me saying, oh, you have to have a basis of trust, man. Mm. How do you get that? Sure. And, and these are, this is, this is very sort of abstract ideas here. Um, I have some ideas to do this in a slightly more concrete fashion that might be useful to, to listeners. Mm. Um, and that is to think about organizing the questions you want to ask mm. um, and categorizing them in terms of the level of challenge, the nature of the challenge they will propose to the the learner. And I'd like to talk about this with, as an example. Um, I was teaching uh, last week a lesson about uh, banking. Uh, I teach some business English, and one of the things I have to learn is like the kind of language used to, for banking services. These are students of, um, of business administration in Germany. And so we have to talk about banks, the services they provide, what makes a good bank, what banks can do um, to improve their services, all the way up to stuff like, do we really need banks in society and uh, mm. cryptocurrencies, uh, that kind of stuff. So you've got a big, broad range of questions that you could ask. So I'm going to um, throw out a few questions to you. Mm. And I want you to tell me which one you think is is hardest. So I'll give you I'll give you three questions. Okay. okay? Question one: What's more important, good online banking or friendly staff? Yeah. Question two: Does your bank offer good service? Mm -hmm. And question three: Do we even need banks nowadays? Mm. Mm. So, or how, how about this? I should make my question. If you were going to sequence those questions, sure. what sequence would you do them in? So. We're talking about Ooh. what's better, important. Uh, what's more important, online or friendly bank mm -hmm. staff? Does your bank offer good service, and do we even need banks nowadays? So you're saying, in if I was teaching this, what order would I ask? Yeah. Would it, what order? Yeah. Well, to be honest, in the situations I teach in, I wouldn't ask any of those questions in a in a in a <laughs> in, in a one to group situation. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But I might. I might. Uh, reduce the risk level mm. and uh, insulate myself from total disaster by maybe uh, asking the students to ask each other or using yeah. some kind of online tool and just saying, listen, yeah. I've got three questions. I just want you to, um, to type in your answers and then, uh, and then looking at yeah. the answers on the board. So, so I wouldn't, I, I don't know, maybe yeah. I just have particularly bad experiences with this, but <laughs> I just wouldn't open myself up well, to the risk. But, well, yeah, with your your but your level of of cautiousness there is absolutely um, emblematic of the situation we all face. Mm. I also am very very cautious about doing just throwing questions out because you always know you're going to get a you, you, or you you risk having a big silence. Mm. But of the three questions I asked mm. you, um, I want you to think about the idea of moving from the personal to the principal. Okay. So a question like, does your bank offer good service? Yeah. It's not yeah. It's not an easy question per se, mm. but it is a personal sure, question. Sure. Um, I'm not asking them for any sort of broader knowledge of, of, of what banks should do, but they, in their personal opinion, do, do, do they get good service sure. from their bank? Sure, I see, I see what you're saying now, yeah. I think, I think I'd go yeah. even more personal and concrete mm. and I'd say, when was the last time you were pleased with your 
the, the, the service. Yeah. 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 I'll probably go another level of simplicity, if you like. I think, and, and that's, and the, well, there's, there's two scales that I want to work with here. Mm. One is moving from the personal to the principal. Yeah. So does your bank of good service is pretty personal. What's more important on good online banker-friendly stuff is a bit less personal because you're talking about principles, but it's still something where you can draw on your own experience. Sure. And do we even need banks nowadays? That is quite a question of principle. That's quite an abstract mm. idea. And generally speaking, I would try and sequence your questioning. So you start with personal questions and you move gradually towards principle yeah. questions. I'd say micro to macro. Or micro to macro. Yeah. Or, or there's always a question of terminology. Sure, right? I mean, sure. you're quite right. Micro to macro. I mean, I, I say personal to principle because I really want. I mean, you, if you ask them what do you personally think and you emphasize what's your opinion so they know, okay, I'm not supposed to, you know, use lots of hedging language and, and, and say, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, and potentially I can just say what I think. Mm. That's the, the, the person. And you lower the challenge by making it a personal. And you make clear your question. I'm not asking you for like some grand theory, just sure. what do you think? Or like, sure. But what you talked about. Um, making it even more simple. You, said, you wouldn't say, does your bank offer good service? Mm. You'd say, when were you last annoyed? Exactly, or when were you last... If you're saying, yes. if you say good service, then you're asking for a judgment on, on yes. the service, which in itself is um, intellectually demanding. And that is the second scale I want to talk about. Okay. Um, on the one hand, we can move from the personal to the principal. On the other hand, we can move from indicative questioning through to interpretive questioning and ultimately mm. to creative questioning. And that is the scale that you're talking about. Okay. The difference between the question, does your bank offer good service? I would say that's a, that requires a level of interpretation. You have sure. to make, like you say, you have to make a judgment of it. When was the last time you got annoyed with your bank mm -hmm. is an indicative question because you simply have to think, okay, what indicated my displeasure with my bank? Or it was that time, I'm going to talk about that. And then if we wanted to take that to the creative level, look at the same question along that kind of scale might be something like, if you were the manager, what would you change at your bank? Sure. So we move from when did they last get on your nerves to what is good service to, okay, you're the manager, put together a presentation to your staff, um, showing them how to improve their service. Mm, love it. So you've moved mm. from the indicative to the interpretive to the creative. Um, other kind of creative systems. Um, so, oh, yeah, sorry, before you went to that. So you could imagine um, the indicative, interpretive, creative scale being on, on the horizontal and the personal to the principal being on the vertical. So it gets a little bit complicated, but you can ask creative questions, which are very much at a personal level, and creative questions all the way to a principal level. And the same with indicative questions. So um, I give the ex indicative example. This is like the simple, the, a simple indicative question at a personal level, which anybody could answer. You can certainly say, who? So guys, um, what's your bank? What bank do you use? Yeah, there you go. That is yeah. that is a question which <laughs> that's I feel confident with that one. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's right. Well, but, but that, seriously, e a, even getting some students like to just say who they bank with, yeah, that yeah. E even that in some situations could be a struggle. I mean, but that's where we start. If we're like, okay, um, I have a, a quieter, a cautious group. People tend to be a bit, uh, but I do need to get them talking because we can't just go into group work because I've not got a big group enough or, my, or we're not allowed to do group work. So I have to do this dialectic, uh, this questioning method. What you can do is begin with an indicative personal question, watch your bank. Mm. If you want it, then keep it indicative, but move from the personal to the principal. You could go from what is your bank to what services does your bank offer? 
and then to what services generally do banks offer. So that's moving into interpretive, is it? That's moving that no, that's moving from personal to principal. Personal to principal. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, but no all point... of those are indicative then, right? Yes. Got you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Got yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. So purely indicative. I mean, this this line of questioning is going to get, well, you see straight away, right? This is going to get very dry and very boring very quickly if we keep it at the indicative level. But you can move at least away from their personal experience to more general macro abstract yeah, things so about the nature of banking. Who are the big players in the market? For example. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the questions are all indicative, they're, they're, uh, but, but at least you're moving towards a more a, a broader context than just the students, the learners' personal life. Yeah. More interesting, though, is to look at the interpretive and the creative levels and how you can take them from the personal to the principal. Sure. So if we go um, across on the horizontal, if you imagine it like yeah. this. I'm sketch, go sketching like, this out. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I think this this kind of stuff does lean, lean itself towards visual representation, which we can't do on the podcast. But don't worry, listeners, there's more stuff coming, which will be more visual. Um, more about that later, maybe. So at the interpretive level, we may say um, a personal question, do, does your bank offer good service? That's what we started sure. with. It requires a level of interpretation of judgment, but it is personal. Then you might go up and do the next question I have, which is what's more important then, good online banking or friendly staff? That is a bit more about principle. It's not just your personal experience, and it requires some interpretation. Like what's better. But crucially, you're giving them a binary choice. What's more important, that or that? Mm. So you're not asking them to come up with a better system or offer a deep analysis of why. You're just sort of offering either or. And you can differentiate that up or down by saying, and couldn't you maybe explain why? And then um, if we go to the, the more principle of the interpretive, it should it could be what should good banks offer their customers. Mm. And I reckon the critical so, state people are making is that's the first question they're asking. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, they know that that's where they want to get. Mm. Um, and, they, and they go in there and they, and they ask that question, like, so what, should, what, what makes a good bank? Mm. And then they, they, they're not getting the response they want, so they start backpedaling. And they yeah. they do what we've just done in reverse. They go, well, okay, well, so what's more important, this or this? Okay, go. So what does and you go back to this? Okay, so what is your bank? Yeah. <laughs> but imagine the feeling as a learner, you know, just the, the, the getting it the doing it in the wrong order, and then you're sort of reduced to the most bait, and then somebody goes. Oh, HSBC or whoever. Yeah. You're like, fine. Yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> Thank you. For... <laughs> it's, it's really... and, then, and then you can work, and then you work all the way back, and then eventually you may then, and then you ask the question, so what should go? Somebody says, and you then, in exasperation, you go, see? Yeah, <laughs> Was it a... that hard? <laughs> this is just, You've already this lost. Is just... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, well, we, my word, we've all done it. Oh, I mean, totally. This is, yeah. I, this is this is not something. I hope that we don't sound sort of patronising or cocky by laughing about this, because because we, I mean, people, listeners, I mean, me and Chris have been teaching for a while, and you only, I mean, you got to make you got to make these, you got to have these experiences. Absolutely, and everyone, everyone, everyone's had. Them. You know what? I'd I'd um, say if there's somebody new out there, I'd say go and make the mistake and and experience yeah. it students students yeah. are used to it <laughs> yes, it's yeah. true. go go, yeah. go and feel it yourself and um you know kind of go yeah. through the process organically you know stu students are used to it you know there's not gonna be any disasters yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's very true um finally then just to round this off if we look at the creative level remember we said we went from indicative to interpretive to creative and then from the personal to the principal so the 
a creative question at a personal level might be, if you were the manager of your bank, um, what would you change? So not any bank, not generally, but specifically your bank. Or if you could, if you could change the color of your bank's website, what would you change it to, and okay. why? Also, something that, that that requires genuinely a, a bit of creative um, input from the learner, but is at a very personal level. If you wanted to make that a, a bit more principal, then maybe you'd say, can you design um, a brochure for the first bank uh, on Mars, for example? Mm-hmm. So your your or, or could you design a brochure for a bank? Um, in um, a country that you've that you've never been to, but yep. maybe the focus country of the teaching. So there, you're you have they have to design a brochure. Then this is not just some tips for their personal bank, but they have to think about okay, so what what does a good bank have to do? Um, how can I put this in a brochure? And then ultimately, um, the creative question at the at the principal level: What kind of system could be better than today's banks? Mm, if mm. you could redesign global banking or replace global banking, what would you do? Mm. And maybe um, write a report or create a presentation imagining a different system for managing the world i mean that that i mean that is a big task i couldn't i couldn't do that but i'll be i'll be reaching of, for the rich picture there oh yeah definitely yeah. we're going to talk about rich picturing yeah. on the later episode mm. no doubt but um that is the kind of creative question at a macro level or a principal level which obviously i mean that's the kind of thing that's not just a lesson that's a whole semester's worth of of, of activities you could do around that and so we get from the question, what is your bank, to the question, what system could organize the world's banking more effectively? Mm-hmm. All of those questions are about banks, but we understand all the, all the intervening questions are about banking, but we understand how to sequence those questions. And we give ourselves a kind of like, a, we can step back. And if we see our students mm-hmm. struggling, we can maybe say, okay, well, let's, let's go to the more personal level. Or if they're struggling in a different way, they say, okay, let's move off this and move to the more interpretive or the more indicative level yeah. rather than the purely creative Yeah, because, well, we haven't quite offered a sequence, have we? We've, we've offered a three-by-three three grid. Mm-hmm. So, so we're saying, broadly speaking, you're going to go diagonally across that grid, but yeah. you've got to, you've got to tweak, tweak the approach um, yeah. and move it and you know, understand what this personal-to-principal idea is. And the indicative, interpretive, creative idea, and at the meta level, be conscious of. Well, this is why teaching is so bloody difficult. I mean, yes. at the meta level, you've got to be <laughs> conscious of the the general tone of the debate. You've got to be watching the learners. Oh, and by the way, the learners are all going to be in different places. So mm. you've got to somehow try to synergize all these things and uh, and navigate navigate a route yeah. across this uh, little framework we're giving yeah. you. Yeah, whilst at the same time implementing all the other aspects of Socratic questioning. <laughs> so employing, employing Socratic irony, um, managing the adversarial system, mm. being aware of this Dunning-Kruger thing mm. and, and, and kind of gently drawing your learner's attention to the inconsistencies yeah. in their reasoning. I mean, it's not easy. Sure, I mean, sure. big, big sh- maybe just a little shout out to all those teachers out there just like casually nailing this mm. every day. Incredible. Um, it's absolutely amazing. I Incredible. mean, especially if you're a teacher working alone up front, maybe without extensive training or support. If you're if you're getting this right, even a proportion of the time, then more power mm. to you because it's 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 fairly tricky. Sure. I think. But I think we should say for people. I mean, I I got a, li- a bit lost in the the discussion. That's why I've literally drawn out the grid here. Mm. But um, mm. if there's one thing you're going to do, then ask a question that's to start this off. Ask a question that's mm. personal and indicative. Yeah. Start at the personal level, start at the indicative level. This is 
questions with one-word answers, mm. closed questions which which do not require interpretation. They don't require um, hedging language or justification. They just require bang. That's the answer. Yeah. That means that that's what I'm terming an indicative question. You can also call it a closed question. Remember, guys, yeah. the semantics of this is unimportant. What you call these things is the principle that matters. Mm. So um, make it personal. Make it clear. Um, one single answer, and then move towards more the ideas of principle, so not so much your personal experience, but what is the principle behind it, and move some questions that, are, first of all, require interpretation or evaluation, so why is that, what could better, and then ultimately, now that we've figured out why that's not good, how would you do it? Mm. Create your own solution. And that's, of course, the really interesting stuff. That's when we move into the creative area. And you can do that at a personal level, you know, redesign your bank or a, um, a principal level, redesign the world's banks. And it, yeah. Um, and the, these are big, the, the, and that ultimately, that, that, those kind of That kind of will... activity can sound a bit like a kind of end of term activity, can't it? You know, where, 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 but, but, but what I'm saying mm. is, if the students mm. have been, through, been along this path, of, of yeah. built it gives it gives that kind of activity uh context and gives gives it a more concrete nature doesn't it if, if, yeah, you, if you're built up to it in this way it's an interesting I mean, we'll probably talk about this i mean that's an interesting perception that you have of this being the sort of like the silly not entirely serious task oh, open, now go and open, design your open-ended own. open yeah. ends. but um I mean, i've come <laughs> to believe that that um that is actually the most those type of tasks oh, totally. the tasks that require creative yeah, yeah, create, create, where learners are creating something new. It's the it's the ultimate expression of their learning, and in terms of an outcome, it's a way more satisfying outcome because it's not just a, a reproduction of something the teachers kind of ask you to do, and, and your the 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 quality of your result is how much does it match the teacher's result? No, no, your teacher's saying I don't know what you're going to do. Yep. just go for it. You have complete freedom. That's how it needs to be. But I agree with you. It can feel a little bit unstructured, and a little bit open ended, and a little bit okay. Now make a poster, <laughs> which let's face it, we we all did at school. But there we go, folks. Um, that is probably the end of our of our main topic today. Um, questioning strategies. As you can see, it, it goes deep, and there's mm. lots of there's lots of stuff to think about. I hope it hasn't become too confusing. And um, and if you're you find this interesting then you know get in touch with us um mm. podbean.com is where we host this podcast you can leave comments there get in touch with us and we'll we'll definitely get back to you and hopefully it's been interesting so mm. to finish things off today we've got a top tip a top tip to finish what has been i think our longest podcast <laughs> <laughs> so far <laughs> chris yeah when you're interacting with your learners mm. how many in in an hour mm. How many instances of teacher talk, Ooh. as in you talking, Ooh. do you do you have? Well, it depends if I'm. It depends how I'm leveraging the lesson. If I'm doing it low risk or high risk. But if I yeah, okay. but if I want just to go routine, um, yeah, I usually teach four sessions in a day, so I leverage leverage it low risk. That means I'll do a fair amount of teacher talk at the beginning. Mm. at the beginning of the session to mm. um set the context set mm. set the motivation and then we're going to into a group activity so i'd say i'll do one at the start i'll do um something at the end pretty mm. much and then there's some yeah. there's some online resources to kind of guide them through 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 the middle so yeah. pretty much just at the beginning and at the end yeah so basically you're already doing what, what the thing that is my 
top tip for this week, which is ration your teacher talk. Absolutely. I, mm. I don't mean don't talk as a teacher, but I mean see teacher talk as a limited resource mm. and use it wisely and try to package it into chunks where your learners pay full attention to what you're saying and then stop talking and don't interrupt them again. Mm. You do this by consciously thinking, right, what information do they need to have? Is this best communicated by me stopping the whole group and talking to them? Sometimes it is. Can I communicate mm. it in another way? Sometimes you can send a message out if you're using a, a learning management software or something. But if, if the best way is for you to talk to the whole group, then before you do so, think for a second about what you want to say Make sure you've you've remembered everything, then stop them, then engage in your teacher talk, then stop. Do not do the thing that I always used to do, which is just at random intervals in a loud voice go, okay, everyone, oh, by the way, blah, blah, bit of information. They'd like, they hear it, go back to their task. And then, you know, two minutes later, oh, and another thing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay, I heard it, back to your task. And then two minutes later, oh, by the way, I forgot to say. Totally. This is incredibly... Um, stressful for you sure. and your voice you're constantly having to bring the old, the whole class member down and it's very disruptive for the learners mm. because if you've set them a task they want to get on with it but um a lack of awareness of that you're interrupting them and that you have to ration and portion your teacher talk very carefully sure. that led me to be extremely stressed extremely sore throat and extremely tired after my sure. teacher and led to my learners to be quite annoyed. And my perception of, 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 oh, do you have Stephen? Oh, yeah, he's the guy with the really loud voice. <laughs> because I was delivering all of my, my lessons at a foghorn volume mm. because I was spending most of the time talking over about half the class and just running down their conversation. And I pride myself nowadays um, on <laughs> trying to be a quiet teacher mm. in that you say, okay, folks, information from the front, wait for the level to come down. Say that information quietly, efficiently, get it out there, make sure you've covered everything, and then set the back to it. And if you forget something, tough. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you may say something, you, you realize something, you have to add something. But if you can, try and plan it a bit. You don't have to plan it weeks in advance. But in the minute before you're about to talk, think, Hannah, is there anything else I'm going to need to say? And get it all in. So ration mm. your teacher talk carefully. This is a tip, I think, you can, if you're teaching this afternoon or tonight, then maybe you can do this straight away. Think about it. Do you, are you consciously aware of it or do you just kind of intervene in a kind mm. of an ad hoc way? And could you not bundle and ration Absolutely. those interventions? And this is where a couple of tools can really help. I mean, I, I always mention um, some kind of online tool to gather, to gather information from the learners. Um, mm. Having even as simple as having, you know, a PowerPoint slide on the screen. And, um, you know, getting the students accustomed to important information going up there. But the best one for me is the timer, is time, yeah. timing the activity. So you're never doing any 10 minutes left, five minutes left. Mm -hmm. Just just mm -hmm. just have a timer on the board and let that sense of, sense of urgency develop naturally as yeah. they as they yeah. learn to follow the timer. Yeah, and, and making sure that your teacher talk is restricted also to high quality content. So you are not using yeah. your valuable teacher talk for kind of, housekeeping you know house yeah, yeah exactly thank you housekeeping tasks so turn the time down asking you know if one group at the back needs to move their 
tables, don't say that to the whole group. Mm. You have to go over to that group and say it quietly to them. So you're really trying to to, um, create a sort of premium value Mm. to those moments where the whole class is being quiet and you are saying something by really restricting that to the important stuff and and really having some respect for your your learner's attention and saying you cannot simply willy-nilly, whatever you wish, the teachers start booming at them. I, I did that for so many years. Mm. Um, well, but it's because it's because we think, oh, that's teaching. I'm teaching now. Yes, I'm. Yeah. I'm. Uh, yeah. You know, this yeah. is the realization Absolutely. of my ambition. But oh. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, for it's, me, it's exhausting. It, it is. And my only goal when I teach now is to not be exhausted at the end of the day. Yeah. And yeah. all of these things help. And by by teaching like that, you will actually deliver better better content anyway mm. actually as, as we said last week um the relaxed teacher not always but often is the teacher doing a doing a better job and if you're alone up front then you have not many people or resources supporting you so you need to look after yourself guys mm. that means um looking after yourself physically not wearing yourself out not wearing your voice out and looking after yourself yourself psychologically so that you don't have you're not worrying about your learners. You're not too worried about insecurities about your own practice. You're reflecting. You know you're doing a good job, but you're still getting better. And hopefully, you're listening to this podcast, and um, and that's helping you along that along that process. Sure, it's the same journey that me and Chris are on. Mm. I mean, um, I'm just trying to do it better each week, and uh, and realizing each week that I could be doing it better and learning and improving my absolutely my craft. Absolutely, so, and uh, yeah, I, I hope we can be. For the people out there teaching alone up front, we can be their secret weapon. This podcast can yeah. be their secret weapon and they can just dip into this once a week, twice a week, get some get some substantive theory, but also two or three practical things that they can do today to de-stress their teaching. Yep, that's the idea. Well, thanks for listening, folks. Um, and do get in touch with us. Um, we're intending to keep doing these podcasts. We're going to broaden it out and try and create some more content on other media as well make it a bit more visual but we'll have to see how that goes um and it's been really great chris chatting to you about this um we'll be back next week with another topic and uh it was your turn to introduce so i guess you're <laughs> gonna you're gonna take us home this week uh, well it's been a big one this week steve i mean i, I have been gripped by the uh, by the content this week i think we've we've provided a framework for teaching really difficult topics and one thing i wanted to say was I teach uh, business strategy and I've never found a way to introduce the idea of strategy and to get people thinking about it and to define it clearly. So I'm going to work through this framework we've got. Very exciting stuff. So fantastic stuff, Steve. As you said, I hope the people out there are getting some value. Get in touch with us on Podbean. We will talk to you very soon. Bye.